Fanny was right enough in not expecting to hear from Miss Crawford now at the rapid rate in which their correspondence had begun. Mary's next letter. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're looking at chapters 40 to 45 of Mansfield Park. Let's start with your 100-word summary. Okay. Fanny isn't happy in Portsmouth, but builds a relationship with Susan. She receives letters from Mary, Edmund and Lady Bertram. After four weeks, Henry turns up in Portsmouth for two days, and Fanny thinks he's improving. She is sure Edmund will propose to Mary, but in a long letter he explains why he hasn't, but that he still wants to. Tom becomes sick after a fall and is brought back to Mansfield. Mary writes that if Tom dies, Edmund will be a better baronet. Fanny has been nearly three months in Portsmouth and wants to go home. And that was mine. Right. That sounded shorter than mine sounds. (laughs) (laughs) No, mine is only just on a hundred. Yeah. Fanny finds her parents' home increasingly distressing, though she attempts to improve things by solving the dispute over the knife and by encouraging Susan's development. She is kept on tenterhooks by Mary Crawford's letter, which suggests she is planning to accept Edmund. Henry Crawford visits Portsmouth and discusses his landlord duties with Fanny, who softens towards him. Edmund has still not proposed to Mary and now has to care for Tom, who is ill and bring him home. Lady Bertram is first horrified, then consoled. Mary writes, foreshadowing pleasure at Tom's death and warning Fanny not to notice hints that Henry is now interested in Mariah. Okay, you actually got a lot more of the details in than I did. Mine well, was I, a very I, surface one. Well, I think partly I added a bit as I was talking to you. Okay. So one of the things that really does strike me about these chapters is Fanny is completely removed from the main action. There's this little Portsmouth sub-story of Fanny and her family and Henry's visit, but all the people and things we've been interested till now, Fanny is just hearing about through letters, including the big stuff of Tom's illness. But an awful lot of it is Fanny's meditation on those letters. Yeah. But nevertheless, I suppose what I thought I'd like to start by talking about is what happens in that little plot. You know, I am so interested in plots. Yeah. And here we have Jane Austen picking up on another one of these plots that was to become almost a classic in particularly later girls' stories, though actually, of course, she'd already used it herself in The Watsons, of the girl who's been brought up in privileged situation coming back and having to cope with a family that hasn't been privileged. But one of the things that struck me in a way in the first time I read this is that Jane Austen takes a view that none of these other people that I'd already read using this plot quite take. She takes it absolutely for granted that there's nothing good to be said about what happens in Portsmouth and that Fanny is totally justified in disapproving of it and does the very best she can. Mm. And that isn't the case in most of these later plots where the elder sister comes back and, in a sense almost converts the family yeah and it's what William thought Fanny should be coming back and doing and Jane Austen thinks 
she's hardly got a chance and so she just quotes a few things. Mm. I think what you get from this is, in the end, Fanny kind of gives up on her parents. She went in expecting a lot from her mother and maybe a bit from her father and she was disappointed but she didn't try to do anything there because I guess she felt she couldn't. But she does latch on to Susan. But Jane Austen doesn't disapprove of her. Yeah. Whereas, you know, 50 years later, Charlotte Young was sort of disapproving of her. She sort of characterised someone who came back to her family and was very scornful of them. Mm. And she says of her, oh, it was like Portsmouth for Fanny Price, Mm. which has this implication that Fanny should have done more. Mm. You know, you feel Jane Austen is behind Fanny in that passage where she says all the girls at Portsmouth despised Fanny because she didn't play the piano for it and they thought she had airs. Yeah. And the only real reason was that Fanny was shy. But Fanny was also sitting there thinking, my God, this is no way to behave. She was really arrived very censorious. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think she actually put on airs, but she certainly... Deep down underneath, or maybe not so deep down, she did feel she was better than them. Perhaps it's not quite fair to say she was better. She knew the rules and they didn't. There were rules and she knew those rules. But she doesn't even stop to think that these are the rules at Mansfield, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the rules for everywhere. She never, ever has that thought. She never thinks this is a different culture (laughs) and I should adapt to it. Yeah. There is that change in her perception of Susan where she moves from being almost frightened by Susan's brashness yes, but then coming to understand it and actually getting on with Susan. And and again, another really charming thing, which is what she does with the knife. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's really nice that she nerves herself up to joining the circulating library. Yeah. And then she's thrilled to bits she's got Susan and she can say all this stuff she wants to say to Susan. (laughs) But I think, you know, buying the knife just does show Fanny being quite proactive and coming up with a good solution. Oh, I think it does. But compared with what these girls and women in the later books do, she isn't trying very hard. And she is being too judgmental. But on the other hand, the sort of books I'm thinking about, their Fanny was not sent to Portsmouth. She was sent to some poor clergyman's family, Mm. which obviously isn't quite as bad as Portsmouth. You get this incredibly strong contrast between Mansfield and Portsmouth. Yes, and very much in the style, in the way it's described. Yeah. But, of course, it's still intertwined so much with Fanny and her concern with Mary. We're continually reminded about this thing she has hanging over her that she's just so sure that Edmund is going to propose and Mary is going to say yes. Well, it's quite clear in Mary's letters. Yeah. She has her jokes about Edmund, pretending he's really evangelical and going round converting old women. Yeah. But also pretty certain she's going to say yes to him. Yeah. But you also have the feeling she's building up what her conditions are going to be. Yeah. Though she never actually says them to Fanny. Mm. But then, of course, chapter 41 is when Henry unexpectedly turns up. Yes, And a thing I like with Henry's visit is that we do actually see, and Fanny sees, a Henry who is clearly making efforts to change himself. Also, I think, though, we see the Henry that you mentioned before, the fact that he is always good in a social situation. So he doesn't bat an eyelid at 
Mr. Price's coarseness or at Mrs. Price's... Well, fussing over him, but also, yes. Who knows what he's thinking underneath about them because it doesn't come out on the surface. What you get on the surface is someone who gets on well with people and who brings them out to to engage with them. It even says, you know, Mr. Price invites him to go to the dockyard, which he probably wouldn't do with everyone. And even though Henry has actually been to the dockyard before anyway, he still says he'd like to. But he also, whereas Mr. Price would just charge off with him and leave the girls behind, he makes sure that Fanny and Susan get to do their errands and that they don't walk too fast for them. And he manages to integrate them without causing offence to Mr. Price yeah. and his friends. When Mr. Price is busy with his friends, he organises the girls. And then, of course, he does that totally useful thing of refusing to go and have his mutton with them. Yeah. His discussion with her about Everingham and how he's gone there and he's actually for the first time really paying attention to his duties as a landlord and he's expressing concern in how things have been managed and he's trying to fix them. And Yes, he's saying all this to Fanny because he knows she'll approve of it. But the thing is, he has done it. Yeah, in a sort of a way, this fits in with the sort of pattern one can pick up of the two young Crawfords. Henry has inherited the Crawford property. Yeah. But his uncle and his uncle's wife are not bothered with living at Everingham. I mean, some people who were left as guardian to a minor with the country estate, would make a real point of taking him there for his holidays and uh-huh. making sure he knew the place. Uh-huh. But the Admiral obviously has had all his own career he's interested in. And so Henry grows up and he's never had the sort of training as Edmund and Tom have had on the Mansfield estate. Yeah, I suppose to him the estate was what gave him his income but he never really thought that much about how he should be managing it to get that income he didn't think about his responsibilities as a landowner to the people on the estate no no and he wasn't brought up to meet them yeah he wasn't taken round on his pony by his father or an uncle to meet the principal tenants Mm. So, yeah, I think, again, Henry in these scenes does come across exceptionally well. It's, I think, even more so than the scene when he's talking to Mary about Fanny. I think this is Henry at his best in these Portsmouth scenes, which I think is probably very, very intentional by Jane Austen. Actually, one of the things that I found quite interesting in the whole Mr Crawford bit is when it goes through how Fanny is thinking he is so much better and you start to think oh Fanny's getting keener on Mr Crawford. (laughs) I highlighted that as well and I was almost going to include it as my favourite sentence where Fanny is talking about the wonderful improvement which she still fancied in Mr Crawford was the nearest to administering comfort of anything within the current of her thoughts. Then it talks a bit about how she was quite persuaded of his being astonishingly more gentle and regardful of others than formerly, and if in little things must it not be so in great, so anxious for her health and comfort, so very feeling as he now expressed himself and really seemed. And you start to think Fanny is softening to him, she's changing her opinion, and then you get this sting in the tail where it goes on to say, and really seemed, might not it be fairly supposed that he would not much longer persevere in a suit so distressing to her? She's sort of setting you up in this paragraph to think Fanny may be changing her mind and maybe starting to think she'll accept him. Yes. But no, that's not it at all. That's not happening. To me, 
you know, the most important part of these chapters is Fanny's response to Mary's letters. Mm. Every time Mary sends a letter, we get Fanny's reflections after the letter. Yes, and they go on and on. And they are very much one of those things that I really do find so interesting about Fanny, this picture of the way her mind is working. Some people might find it very boring, but I don't. Jane Austen makes it very interesting for me to watch how Fanny's thinking Mm. and how she's tossing up. Is this a justifiable thing for me to be feeling? Am I justified in saying this about Mary and and Edmund? It's Mm. those long passages. Mm. And yeah, Mary writes lovely letters. Oh, yes. They're very Mary. But I think you can still feel the influence of Admiral Crawford's wife. This sort of smartiness. Yes. And I get the feeling that it's not quite her. It's what she thinks she should be. Yeah. It is something of a persona in the letters. Yes. Yeah, the smart London woman writing her clever letters with her snarky observations of people. Yes. I mean, when we come to the very last one well, well, about Yeah, where she pushes it too far. Yes. But before that, we have Edmund's letter, which is so self-indulgent. And so censorious. Yeah. I mean, we started him being a lot more censorious the moment he got himself ordained. Yeah. And now he's being even worse. Well, the thing that strikes me is it's stream of consciousness in the letter. Should I write to Mary? Should I go back to London? No, I think I'll write. No, I don't want to because Mrs Fraser might convince her otherwise. Just... Dumping all that on Fanny, and it's like he's not self-editing at all as he writes. Well, again, it's just that he presumably, the way he feels, he can say anything to Fanny. Yeah. But there's no self-criticism in Edmund. No. None of that sort of self-evaluation is just the right thing to be doing. It just isn't there in what Edmund has to say. Yeah. Though, of course, part of Fanny's reflections on this letter from Edmund are... Again, we're seeing, I think, Fanny being incredibly unjust towards Mary. Yes. Where she's saying, he will marry her and be poor and miserable. God grant that her influence do not make him cease to be respectable. So very fond of me. Tis nonsense all. She loves nobody but herself and her brother. Her friends leading her astray for years. She is quite as likely to have led them astray. They have all perhaps been corrupting one another. Actually, I think that piece of indignation is really lovely because, you know, she lets Fanny say quite horrible things. And honestly, quite unjust and unfair things to Mary because Mary does not love nobody but herself and her brother. Mary genuinely loves Edmund and genuinely cares for Fanny. And to say that she is quite as likely to have led them astray, again, no, I don't think so. I think Mary has adopted their persona. They're not adopting her persona. That That's Fanny really letting herself go. Yeah. In almost the only way we see it. Yeah. Because really what she's responding to, I think, is the fact that Mary has revealed that she really is in love with Edmund and really wants to marry him. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Tom's illness. Yes. See, it's interesting that Edmund is, not just Edmund is the person who went to get Tom, but Edmund is the only one who's good in the sick room. Lady Bertram is useless in the sick room, so Thomas talks too loudly. And it's not just the narrator telling us that Edmund goes and stays with Tom in the sick room, but Tom wants Edmund. And that is maybe just one of the hints you get that for all his 
flaws and limitations and pomposity. There are signs that maybe Edmund will be a good clergyman in terms of looking well, after people, providing and, support. And, be, and being in the sick room, which yeah. is, a, I mean, a lot of the job of a clergyman was visiting the sick. Yeah. And if he can make Tom feel all right, he'll probably make other people. Yeah. And the amount of religion he pours onto them will probably be appropriate to yeah. them. Yeah, because it says Edmund was the companion he preferred. His aunt worried him by her cares, and Sir Thomas knew not how to bring down his conversation or his voice to the level of irritation and feebleness. So I can, you can just see Sir Thomas in the room, standing there, holding forth in a loud yes. voice. Edmund was all in all. Look, we're back to the Edmund that was so sweet to Fanny when she was an unhappy little girl. Yeah. And then, yeah, then we get Fanny thinking about how she really wants to go back to Mansfield and that lovely line, she had thought that when going to Portsmouth she was going home, but now Portsmouth was Portsmouth and Mansfield was home. But again, you know, you get one of those cases where Fanny is so self-conscious, what will they think what I'm thinking? Yeah, and, and then they, they actually don't care at all. That doesn't mean a thing to them. And it's one of the things that, again, makes Fanny such a coherent character mm. and that also is one of these repetitive things that can get on people's nerves about yeah. Fanny. What's she going on about this? Who's going to care whether yeah. Fanny says home or not? Yeah. The other thing that comes out of Tom being sick is Mary's letter. What I feel with that is this is Mary being almost the opposite of Fanny. You know, Fanny says, oh, I'm thinking these bad thoughts. Oh, I mustn't think them. And you've got Mary. I'm having these bad thoughts. I'm not going to pretend to be better than I am. I will make it known that I've thought, wouldn't it be nice if mm. Tom died? Oh, dear, I don't really want it. I don't think it's that. I think it's making a joke about something that is, frankly, in kind of poor taste. I don't think Mary is thinking, I'm having these bad thoughts and I'm going to own them and put them out there. I think it's just Mary not filtering. In the same way, back with the play where it was either Yates or Tom, I forget which of them, saying, couldn't the old grandmother have lasted another week before dying? Yes. It's the same sort of thing when you don't particularly care about someone. Yes. You can casually make a comment about their death. And Mary, even though she knows Tom quite well, doesn't particularly care about him and does care a lot about Edmund. She is making a joke about it and not actually thinking that Fanny has lived 10 years of her life with Tom as a sort of foster brother. And what might work as a joke between her London friends who've never met Tom is not a joke she should be making to Edmund or to Fanny or to Mariah or to Julia. There are, there are people you can maybe make these sort of edgy jokes to yes. about death and illness and people you don't and the people you don't are the people who are closer than you are to the person in question again this whole thing going back to the very beginning with mary making inappropriate jokes yeah she just somehow even though she's really perceptive about people's feelings in some occasions she just doesn't quite judge her audience right sometimes yes. well not when that audience is fanny and edmund yes but I just think there's the one last thing to remember about Mary's letter, and that is the hint that Jane Austen gives us that something may be up between Mariah and yeah. Henry because she's very quick at noticing these things. Yeah. So she's saying nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Yeah. Something I didn't say, but 
maybe I should have with the letter before this, where she says, Henry can't go to Everingham yet because there's a party and I want him to, to meet Mrs. Yes. Rushworth. And in hindsight, you could almost, if you wanted, put some of the blame for what goes down on Mary because if she hadn't encouraged Henry not to go to Everingham, then he wouldn't have. You can definitely think they did this, but the person who's in the wrong is, is oh, Henry. Yeah. No, no argument. But Mary is a sort of a bit of a... If not exactly a mischief maker, she likes to see a bit of social excitement. Let's watch this stuff happen. Okay, so, favourite sentences. Well, my favourite is about Lady Bertram and her letter writing. Everybody at all addicted to letter writing without having much to say, which will include a large proportion of the female world at least, must feel with Lady Bertram that she was out of luck in having such a capital piece of Mansfield news as the certainty of the Grants going to Bath, occur at a time when she could make no advantage of it, and will admit that it must have been very mortifying to her to see it fall to the share of her thankless son and treat it as concisely as possible at the end of a long letter instead of having it to spread over the largest part of a page of her own. But I just love that bit about addicted to letter writing without having much to say. <laughs> yes. Um, and something that really is that you could just toss off in half a sentence as Edmund did. Yes. But she could have spread it over a page. Yes. I found that really funny. <laughs> yes. Well, what I, I've chosen, and this is why I've chosen this one, it's a point I'd sort of like to make about the way Jane Austen describes Portsmouth. You know that sentence you just read has all this irony in it yeah. and humour and irony and in Portsmouth she doesn't do any of that. There's nothing funny about Portsmouth. Uh-huh. Everything is straightforward. It's straight descriptive. So this is the one I've written. Rebecca's cookery and Rebecca's waiting and Betsy's eating at table without restraint and pulling everything about as she chose were what Fanny herself was not yet enough inured to for her often to make a tolerable meal and I partly put it there because I love the picture of Betsy at the table pulling everything <laughs> about you can just see it throwing food around mm. so it's that little bit of extra in it but I think that's funny but I think Jane Austen she's so straightforwardly descriptive mm. in everything to do with Portsmouth mm. none of this irony no sort of sideways jokes yeah nothing like that and it's great description yeah. I mean you love hearing about all that stuff yeah. that's happening yeah. there So this week we're not talking about just one character, we're talking about the Price family en masse. And I guess one thing I'd like to start with is commenting on, we've seen up until now examples of not great marriages where a man marries a woman for her looks. We saw it in the Bennets, we saw it in the Palmers. Yes. And we also commented on how we get a different picture of it in Sir Thomas and Lady Bertram. But Mr. and Mrs. Price is the only one I can think of where the woman has married the man for his sex appeal. She obviously didn't think through the implications, so now she's living a life that is materially less well-off than how she was brought up, and her body is physically worn out after bearing 10 children. (laughs) So Lady Bertram went up socially from where she was. Mrs. Price has just gone way down socially from where she came from because of this imprudent marriage. But the interesting thing is what we see of Mr. Price in the book is that he's basically, he's coarse, he's borderline, he swears, he's borderline if not actual alcoholic, he certainly drinks, 
And yet there is just this one bit where it says he did not want abilities, but he had no curiosity and no information beyond his profession. He read only the newspaper and the Navy list. He talked only of the dockyard, the harbour, Spithead and the mother bank. Yes. He swore and he drank. He was dirty and gross. But we do see him still having this interest in boats and the Navy. I was upon the platform two hours this afternoon looking at her. Yes. So he obviously still has some kind of affinity, not just for his sailor or marine friends, but for ships and the sea in general. Well, I think, you know, again, that's what he shares, presumably, with his sailor friends and with all his sons. Yeah. Except possibly the one who went off to Merchant's Tailor and went into a <laughs> and went into an office. Yeah. Oh, but he's basically other than these occasional bits of his enthuse for, for ships and the bit about him not wanting for abilities, doesn't come across very well at all. Well, she doesn't like him. The other point that I started to feel was, is it so bad for the prices? You've got Mrs Price being hopeless. But it's a household where people go. She's not someone who keeps them away. The boys are always at home. Yeah. They're roaring around at home. They're happy. Yeah. Mr Price is sufficiently happy with her housekeeping to think he can meet Mr Crawford and, and, and invite him in to and dinner. And invite him in to dinner and presuming there'll be some mutton there <laughs> that he'll be prepared to eat. It's not a picture of a household that's in any way in collapse. It's a very active, happening household. All yeah. these boys are growing up. They're full of life. They're full of enthusiasm. They're obviously, you know, in spite of the dirty cutlery, they're fed enough to keep them going. Yeah. And as she says later, they're all encouraging one another yeah. up their careers. Yeah. Mr Price has stopped working, but all the boys are sort of, they're getting stuck into it. Mrs Price is being a very sloppy housekeeper. Yeah. You know, she hasn't got much competence. and she... yeah. You wonder, I suppose, if the fact that she just sits around and complains rather than doing stuff, well, is that just because she has come down so much from how she was brought up? It's possible that she doesn't really know how to run the house, but she says she does half the work herself. Yeah. So, you know, she's probably there just flopping around, but her husband is not abusing her for being a bad housekeeper or in compare with the way poor Mrs Palmer is abused by her husband. Mm. And we don't hear Mr Price saying, you know, this is a filthy house, why don't you do something about it? Mm. And after all, no matter how dirty and gross and horrible he is now, the number of children they have, they obviously had an active sex life. Yes. Well, I suppose having said that, of course, you don't know whether it was a mutually enthusiastic sex life or not. It may not or have been. Might but... have, no, it might have been a really happy one. You yeah. can't know. Yeah. No. I don't want to boost them too much. But yeah. She says Mrs Norris would have made a better mother for nine children. Well, would she? I mean, she might have kept the house nice, but the boys would probably be out as much as they could. Yeah. You wouldn't have her husband bringing all his friends in. So I think this is probably a bit foolish, but it sort of struck me as something you could think about. And you could think about what would have been the case if he'd had a wife who was terribly strict and terribly fussy and, you know, got behind the maids and kept everything clean. Mm but criticised him and criticised his friends, mm. the boys would have probably been less happy in such a household yeah. as they would where they can roar around the place and mm. bang the doors and chase yeah. one another up and down the stairs. 
Susan might have been happier. Well, Susan might have, yes. Perhaps Susan's got a bit of Aunt Norris in there. <laughs> well, seriously, perhaps she does because she is trying to make things right, to make things work. She's got no diplomacy in how she's doing it. Yes. So, yeah, maybe she does have a bit of Aunt Norris in her. Well, Aunt Norris is someone with a bit of get up and go. Yeah. Which Susan has got. Yeah. Yes. But she still comes across as much nicer than Aunt Norris. Yes. Actually, having said that, one of the things that really struck me was this total difference in the tone of the description of the prices. None of that indulgent humour towards them. Yeah. With Mrs Norris, there's an awful lot of irony in it, but it's yeah. an anti-her irony. Yes. Oh, yeah. Whereas there's no yeah, irony. there's no that... irony in either Mr or Mrs Price. There's condemnation of them. The real condemnation previously is of Mrs Norris and sometimes of Sir Thomas. Mm. But Mrs Norris, she's horrible, but she's a comic character. Well, she's a grotesque, Yeah, yes. she's a grotesque, but she's, I think, the best-drawn grotesque in all of Jane Austen. Yes. Whereas Mr and Mrs Price are just kind of depressing. Yes. And yet out of their sort of fairly depressing background, you have Fanny, you have William, you have Susan. You have those young boys that are roaring around. There doesn't, as far as you can see, seem to be any harm in them. Well, at least they're at home. They're not roaring around the streets. Yeah. They're not beating people up. Yeah, they're not (laughs) torturing cats. No. (laughs) Actually, what I think she's implying with both William and Susan, as they have a sort of natural tendency well I might as well start talking now a bit about the idea of a disposition which you know if you put the disposition against the principles this is almost Jane Austen saying nature versus nurture yeah Jane Austen makes this clearest when she describes Fanny's thoughts about Susan she says her greatest wonder on the subject soon became not that Susan should have been provoked into disrespect and impatience against her better knowledge, but that so much better knowledge, so many good notions should have been here at all, and that brought up in the midst of negligence and error, she should have formed such proper opinions of what ought to be. She who had had no cousin Edmund to direct her thoughts or fix her principles. Mm that they have this innate taste that when they see the sort of things that were going on at Mansfield, like Fanny, she has quite a miserable time to start with at Mansfield, but she does really take to the kind of measured behaviour that goes on in that house. Mm. And in a way, everything she says about Susan and William absolutely contradicts what she says about Sir Thomas Mm. having done the wrong thing by his children Mm. when he was controlling their education and principles. I guess what you get is that Fanny and Susan and William all have good dispositions. Fanny was given education by Edmund. William was given education by the captain or whoever on his first ship when he was at a young age. Poor Susan wasn't given anything until Fanny came, which is why she was kind of frustrated and not being able to achieve what she wanted. You can't make a call on those younger boys. And Betsy, I think what you get is that she's spoiled. And Jane Austen doesn't particularly like spoiled children. So I guess what you are getting, though, is those three children, they do have good dispositions, but the education is also important. I think she's sort of suggesting it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. 
the Price family spoils Jane Austen's argument in the last chapter. It demonstrates the importance of disposition in the choice of principles to live by. Mm. It doesn't make clear what she feels Sir Thomas did wrong. Mm. My historical background piece today is on servants. I've left talking about servants until this point because we have now come across two strongly contrasting groups of servants. Those employed by the country gentry at Mansfield Park and the Parsonage and at Southerton and those employed by the emerging lower middle class typified by the prices. Serendipitously, I have just been reading a biography of Dickens which gives examples of both kinds of servant. In the first group of servants, we have Baddeley, the butler at Mansfield Park, the housekeepers at both Mansfield Park and Southerton, Lady Bertram's maid, Chapman, the two housemaids who slept in the little attic near Fanny and could help her dress when she arrived. There are also at the parsonage the cook who was given wages as high as the one at the park and the gardener who must have had sufficient staff to create a shrubbery in about five years. (laughs) And then there is also Mrs Norris's chief counsellor, Nanny, where most of us who read Jane Austen well aware that these big country houses tended to have quite elaborate hierarchies of servants with the butler, housekeeper and cook at the top and each with a hierarchy of servants under them. The butler in control of the footman, the housekeeper in charge of the housemaids and the cook in charge of the kitchenmaids. And they all ate together in the servants' hall and as well there was a group of outdoor servants, coachmen, grooms and gardeners who slept above the stables or in cottages in the grounds. Mm. What about the ladies' maids? They were sort of body servants, the ladies' maids and the valets, who had a slightly different position because they were much closer to individuals among the employers. Mm. There is plenty of information about the duties of each category of servants to be found on the internet and in the later household advice books like Mrs Beaton. But there are a number of questions that these sources don't really address and that I've tried to work out for myself. Well, one of these questions that I've thought about a little bit is where did these servants get their training? And as I see it, it seems likely that most of them learned on the job entering one of these large households at about the age of 13, but considering themselves as being brought in on a career track, expecting to be taught or to pick up the skills that would allow them to improve their status and save their wages. Footmen would begin as pages or errand boys, cleaning boots and knives and taking measures. Scullery maids would progress to kitchen maids, where they would learn by helping and watching the cook. Some, though especially the body servants like the valets and the ladies' maids, may have done apprenticeships 
with hairdressers and dressmakers, mm-hmm. either before or during their service in the big houses. Okay, I didn't realise that. Ambitious servants would move from household to household, often through recommendations, through their own relatives or through employers. Remember in Sense and Sensibility how the moment Mrs Jennings hears that Lucy Steele is getting married, she says, I could help them to her housemaid, for my Betty has a sister out of place mm. and would fit them exactly. Mm. And then later on, when they go down in the world, she says, oh no, she says, they must get a stout girl of all works. Betty's sister would never do for them now. (laughs) But they could also choose, rather than waiting to move up the hierarchy of one of these large houses, to become the principal servants in more modest households, like the three servants who preceded Mrs Dashwood and her daughters from Norland to Barton Cottage. One also gets the impression that there were widely observed conventions about employment contracts. From what Fanny says to her mother about dismissing Rebecca at the end of her year, the impression you get is that in these big country houses, both servants and employers were protected by some sorts of annual contracts. These may even have been contracts that could be enforced by the magistrates if the servant was being dismissed unfairly and yeah. so on they could possibly appeal I don't know but that just strikes me as the case mm. and of course the servants in these big houses with these protected contracts could also save up enough to retire and set themselves up in various entrepreneurial roles on their own lodging houses coffee shops and then ones whose names have survived, like the ones who ran Whites and Brooks, two of the men's clubs. Yep. Now, the second question that I wonder about, and I don't know an answer to, but I'm having a guess at, is where they came from. Now, the first assumption one has, these little 13-year-old boys and girls who are coming into these big houses, is that they were the children of local small farmers or the most prosperous cottagers. To be honest, my first assumption would be they would be children of servants. Well, and that was the other thing I was going to say. They could certainly be the children of servants, a self-perpetuating class. And Jane Austen more or less tells us that. Think of Emma, where Mr Woodhouse has proposed that Hannah, the daughter of the Woodhouse's coachman, James, should be taken on at Randall's as a housemaid. Mm. And so they're saying, and now James will always be wanting to drive us over to Randall's. (laughs) But anyway, i just come across a sort of a a straightforward real-life example of this in the background of Charles Dickens's father, who was born in 1785, so was in the same generation as the Bertram children. His mother, that is Dickens's grandmother, was a housemaid for somebody called Lady Blandford, who came from a landed Shropshire family, and she'd been born in Shropshire. Mm-hmm. But she was brought to London by Lady Blandford, who was there for the season. And while she was there in London, she met and married a footman, who was later promoted to butler, who was working for a family with, a, with strong political connections, the Crewe family, but they came from Cheshire. Well, when they got married, she was immediately taken into the Crewe's household and made a housemaid, and she worked there for the rest of her life. And one then wonders 
if you've got these married servants living in these houses, where did they cohabit? I guess I just assumed, like the military, there are certain married servants. Where are the married quarters? And if there are, what happens to the babies? I'm sure what they would have done, as happened to children so often, the children would have been boarded out, probably in a farmhouse or some somewhere like that. And there were also women who had what were in effect boarding schools for quite tiny children. Mm. When we move to the price of servants, however, we come to a completely different category. Unskilled, prepared to stand up for themselves, working in a fairly fluid labour market where mistresses could always find unemployed servants and unemployed servants could always find jobs. Mm. You get this quite different impression. Where did these girls come from? They're obviously not part of the same employment group as the ones who go into the big houses. Once again, Dickens' biography provides some clues. Dickens was born in 1812, that's about the time Mansfield Park is happening, and he was born in the Portsmouth area. And his biographer records that most of the family's servants through his childhood were workhouse girls. And so if I've got this right, at this date, it was the practice of the workhouse guardians to apprentice children they were responsible for. These would be children from babies that had been, you know, um, deposited there by their unmarried mothers down to children who'd been just recently orphaned. Yeah. And so these large numbers of children turning up at workhouses. Yeah. And they were appealing to take because the workhouses usually paid some sort of, would have been pitiful, but some sort of apprentice fee. And in return for that fee and the use of their labour, these employers to whom they were apprenticed agreed to provide for their upkeep. Now, in some cases, this led to appalling mistreatment. In other cases, though, it could lead to women with good household skill taking on reasonably biddable girls and creating the stout maids of all work that Mrs Jennings had mentioned. Yep. And in between, there was this floating population of young women who, once they were freed from their apprenticeships and had picked up some expertise were now in their early 20s and finding they could work for money, they could share their employer's food, they could walk off the job if they didn't like them and they had free time where they could wander around the ramparts on a Sunday. Mm. And of course when Fanny is assuming that Rebecca won't be kept beyond her year, Mrs Price actually says, I hope to be rid of her before then, which again suggests that that protective contract is far less applicable at this level. Yes, at, at that particular time. That's the basic background that I think I'm right in talking about. But there's just one thing that's always niggled me a bit with the way Jane Austen talks about these maids in Mansfield Park. There's the one when they're at Southerton and Mrs Norris is saying how good they were at Southerton and how they turned off two maids for wearing white dresses. Mm. And then we've got this other occasion here where, you know, Mrs Price is embarrassed to see Rebecca walking around with a flower in her hat. Mm. And Jane Austen seems to agree with them. I'm not sure she agrees with Mrs Norris. No, if it's Mrs Norris, you can't believe it. Yeah. But you know, I just had this really sad picture with these girls 
at Southerton that they're getting some money of their own for the first time. Out they go, they buy themselves dresses they think look lovely and then the housekeeper sees them in them and they're out. Yeah. I find that, you know, really quite sad Mm. if that was the sort of thing that happened. Mm. In terms of the pop culture versions for this week, like I said earlier, one of the things about these chapters is that Fanny is removed from a lot of the action and so much of it is done through letters, which obviously doesn't play all that well in film and TV versions. So that's one of the things that I think is interesting between them to compare how they manage this differently. All right. So first of all, the 1983 version with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell, it does omit the letter from Edmund. But the way it deals with both the letter from Lady Bertram about Tom and also the final letter from Mary, it doesn't have the earlier letters from Mary, is in terms of voiceover with visuals. So the letter from Lady Bertram starts as Lady Bertram's voiceover when Fanny is reading the letter, but then it moves to visuals of what is happening with Tom being brought home and that sort of thing. And in a sort of similar fashion, the letter from Mary, there's also voiceover, but the visuals in this case you get are not necessarily things Mary would have seen when writing the letter. So you actually have scenes of Mrs. Rushworth's house and Henry's arriving and Mariah receives Henry very coldly. Then you see them exchanging glances and then she leaves the room and he follows her. He quotes from Lover's Vows to her and they kiss. So of course a lot of that is stuff Mary couldn't have seen. So what they're showing in this one scene which is tied to Mary's letter is the progression and it happens over the course of one evening. The progression from coldness to exchanging of meaningful glances to going out of the room together. Yes. But, so that's how they deal with it. A combination of voiceover and visuals plus cutting right back on the sheer number of letters. Then we have the 1999 version with Francis O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller. Now, setting aside the letters thing, which I'll get to a bit later, they have done a completely different take on Henry's visit to Portsmouth. The 1983 version treated it fairly straight, abbreviated from the book, but basically what you get in the book. 1999, first of all, Fanny is asleep and then she gets called out. There's this boy outside saying he has something for Miss Fanny Price and the boy's there by this big thing on wheels and he lights a fuse and fireworks come out of it and someone's there playing music and then it opens and white birds fly out of it and then the boy says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I was also supposed to read something about starlings. Which is just totally over the top. But then after that, you see Fanny coming out of church and Henry is there waiting for her. And in their conversations, Henry says that he knows that Fanny loves Edmund. And he also acknowledges his behavior with Mariah. And he says that he will wait even though he knows Fanny loves another. Then the next thing that happens is that Fanny has received the letter from Edmund and reading out the bit where he says that Mary is the only woman he would think of as his wife. Henry meets Fanny when she's crying about that and he comforts her. Then a scene where Mrs. Price tells Fanny that there is no shame in wealth and she reminds Fanny that she married for love. So yeah, (laughs) someone else pushing Fanny to marry Henry. But then what happens? Fanny and Henry are walking on the ramparts and Fanny says that poverty frightens her and she specifically refers to being poor as a woman. Remember, this is a production that wants to have a certain amount of social commentary. And Henry says she could spend her days in comfort with him. And Fanny says, yes, she could. And this is basically Fanny accepting Henry's proposal. And 
I've commented before, I don't find a lot of these Henrys particularly attractive. But at this moment, this Henry, he is so delighted that Fanny has said yes. It is really, really nice. But they've done the big with the proposal. Because the next morning, Henry arrives at the house with flowers. And, and then she says, no, no, I spoke hastily. I still don't know if I can trust you. And he gets really angry. Well, so, they're giving Henry a perfectly good reason to go yeah. off with Mariah, yes. which nobody else does. Yeah, well, I think, I won't say they're putting the blame on Fanny, but they are giving Henry a much stronger emotional drive for doing what he does. What happens next is that Edmund arrives to take Fanny back to Mansfield and he tells her about Tom's illness. So that's how they deal with the letters thing. They call Fanny away from Portsmouth much earlier. So when the big dramatic stuff of Tom's illness is happening, Fanny is there. Yeah. Then there's the 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. Now, you may remember from last week that this doesn't actually have Portsmouth. They are going away and they leave Fanny on her own at Mansfield because this is supposedly a punishment, although personally I don't see it that way. Henry arrives and he and Fanny walk about the grounds. So he arrives in Mansfield. Yeah. You see him walking through the gates, so I think the impression would be he's come back and he's staying with the Grants again and he's just walked across to Mansfield and he and Fanny go for a walk in the grounds and Henry doesn't talk at all about Everingham, but he does say, I've been thinking about you constantly, give me some sign. And Fanny does have her line about, we all have our best guides. And then Henry says, leave me to my own judgment, but my better self is in your keeping. But in this one, because Fanny is already at Mansfield, when the big drama of Tom's illness happens, she's there when he gets brought back into Mansfield. And at this point, Fanny and Edmund have a discussion about Mary. So instead of Edmund writing that long self-indulgent letter to Fanny, yes. it does make a lot more sense to have it in a conversation. Yeah. In this one, there are no letters from Mary at all. So they completely get rid of any correspondence. Yeah. So again, they've, they've all taken very different approaches to how to deal with the huge amount of letters in this yes. section. <laughs> and just to finish, the... 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. Henry arrives in Portsmouth for a conference and Henry and Frankie are talking to each other on a hill and it's, I'm pretty sure that where they're talking in the background is the Garrison Church, which still exists, which of course was the chapel that the Price family went to. And in this one, like in one of the other ones, Henry actually acknowledges how badly he behaved with yeah. Mariah and he says he was bored and unhappy but he truly loves Frankie and he's willing to wait for her then as in the 1999 version Ed turns up and says Tom has been in a car accident and he's in hospital and I can't face it and I need you to come with me yeah. so he takes Frankie with him to the hospital and it later comes out that Tom wasn't driving the car but the four other people who were in the car with him that none of them were seriously injured. So when, when they were sort of okay, they just left the hospital and left him there, which again fits in, you know, oh, completely. maps yes. to what happened yes. with his friends. Now, instead of Mary writing to Frankie, I think I mentioned before, Mary has been inspired by Frankie's videos to start doing some of her own videos. And she makes a video. She's cross that Julia has shown Ed these videos that Mary has been making. And they had a big fight on the phone about it. And then Mary says, if I were Mr. Bertram, I'd slip the doctor some money to keep Tom in hospital. And she says that if Tom couldn't take over the business of running Mansfield Park, she thinks that Ed would do a much better job of it. 
Oh, well, that, that fits. So, yeah, it, it fits, but it's not in a private letter to Frankie. It, it's in this video blog to all her friends. They shuffle the order a bit as well because Ed has obviously now seen this, so he's kind of yes. already having issues with Mary. So that's how they all dealt with these Portsmouth chapters, which in most cases involved reducing the amount of time at Portsmouth. And I think you had something you wanted to refer to, just a Jane Austen reference in another book. This is just picking up on the sort of response people were having to Jane Austen. And there are lots that we obviously haven't found. But when you come across them, it's really rather interesting to see them. And this is this piece which comes into what Katie did next by Susan Coolidge. Which, for those who don't know, it's an American book. And when were they written? They were written in the 1870s, but I think this one's up into the 1880s. Yeah, and in this one, Katie is actually on a sort of world tour. And Katie is sort of very, very Anglophile. So when they're leaving the ship, they're going to London. It says this, Wimpole Street, she cried suddenly, as she caught sight of the name on the corner. That is the street where Maria Crawford, she gets her names mantled, in Mansfield Park, you know, opened one of the best houses after she married Mr Rushworth. Think of seeing Wimpole Street, what fun. She looked eagerly out after the best houses, but the whole street looked uninteresting and old-fashioned. The best house to be seen was not of a kind, Katie thought, to reconcile an ambitious young woman to a dull husband. <laughs> well, if you know what Wimpole Street's like, the houses there are sort of, you know, standard Georgian terrace houses. Mm-hmm. But this is Katie coming from America of the Gilded Age. Yeah. And so what she's probably thinking of as the best houses would be something sort of from Millionaire's Row <laughs> in New York. Yeah. Which, where those little modest terrace houses <laughs> in Wimpole Street don't look like anything at all. All I'm saying is it's mildly interesting to see this response to Mansfield Park in the context of the America of the Gilded Age. <laughs> We had a couple of pieces of feedback on the last episode, some on Facebook and some on our website. Sue has said she found the explanation of the difference between Marines and Navy especially enlightening, and she asks, what would cause someone to go into the Marines over the Navy? Well, I had a quick chat to Michael about that because, of course, I didn't have a clue. Yes. (laughs) So he said there's a couple of reasons. One is that in the Navy, first of all, you're having to make that decision when you're 13. That was my immediate response yeah. to what you said. Yes. Yeah, whereas you can enter the Marines at a much later age. Yes. Also, even just to get in as a midshipman in the Navy, you still need interest. You yes. still need to be from a naval family or to have interest so you can get someone to take you on. Yeah, while earlier than that, there had been situations of people entering just as normal seamen and managing to get to officer class. As, as I think Captain Cook did. Yes, that, that was the example Michael gave. But that was increasingly not the case. So yeah. he said that those are the main sorts of reasons. So then we had a comment from R. Lawrence who said, I really like Edmund. And she thinks that Lines like, I should hope to be remembered at such a distance as the White House, captures his voice and style of humour for me. And she wonders whether we mean that Austen tried to make him attractive and failed, and also failed to explain why Mary would like him, apart from his being a baronet's son, well-bred and good-looking. 
I guess I kind of do mean that she didn't, for me, she didn't make him as attractive as a lot of the other heroes. I do agree there are these quiet moments of humour like we found in Edward in Sense and Sensibility. But I do think Edmund is a much more interesting and well-drawn character than Edward. He's not a failure in the same way Edward is, but he doesn't come across as attractive. I kept noticing what I thought were the attractive bits about Edmund, like those little bits of humour, like that way he can hold his own against Henry Crawford when they're talking. What we don't like and what came out in the last few episodes that we did was that he is so pompous. Mm. She goes on to say he's wrong and oblivious in Chapter 35, but he's being mocked for it Emma style. And then she quotes... I wish he had known you as well as I do. He should have worked upon my plans, the kind of authority of a privileged guardian. And I don't get that Emma mockery to it. To me, it's kind of straight. No, I can't feel his being mocked. I see it simply as Edmund's sort of self-satisfaction. Yeah. His self-conceit. Which, of course, Emma has. Yes, but on the other hand, Edmund is not being mocked. Throughout the book yeah. for his self Well, at least if he is, we're not getting it. Yes. And again, everyone gets different things from the book and that's great. Well, and yeah, she goes on to say, and Fanny gets to make strong arguments that we know are better than his, even as we feel for Fanny's only being half listened to. He always dismisses or talks himself out of criticism of the Crawfords until the very end when he is no longer the dupe of Mary. Maybe like Elizabeth Bennet, I can soften the manner of Edmund's speeches and remember their warmth. I guess that's true. There is warmth to Edmund. Just Oh, yes. Yeah. There were also two comments on the Facebook page. First of all, from Joyce saying, does anyone else get an icky feeling from Mr. Price? Not a downright pervert feeling, but the idea that in his cups he'd get a bit handsy and gropey. I didn't get that sense from him. I, I wouldn't put it past him to be violent if he was drunk. But I didn't get the sense he'd be handsy or gropey. I suppose perhaps just thinking a bit about he keeps making those suggestive comments about Fanny's sexuality. Oh, you're big. Oh, you're looking for... True. No, but that's what he'd say. I would take that as if you want to make evidence, that's the beginnings of it. Okay, and the last one was from Bethany. I love the discussion about Edmund. I think I'm mostly on Michael's side. So the complete opposite from earlier. But she also makes a suggestion. As for why Edmund didn't propose, I know it serves the plot and I've wondered that before. I think he's so afraid of being refused because he knows it will never be the same if she refuses him and he can't bear the idea of losing her. He's a second son and she's a straight Regency 10 in the eyes of the world. I feel like Mary marrying Edmund is almost as uneven a match financially as Bingley marrying Jane Bennett. Mary could do much better but not morally, which is the point Jane Austen is making, I think. That does actually make sense, that yes. kind of not wanting to absolutely end it, you know, afraid yes. of absolutely ending it. I think that's the explanation one has to have. Yeah. He, he doesn't want her to say no forever because he's not going to do a Henry Crawford and hang around no. and say, you must marry, you must marry me, I'll change. I'll... No, no, he's not creepy like that. Yeah, he's not going to stand well, outside he, well, the window he, with a boombox. Well, he doesn't have that level of of self confidence. Yeah.
You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be finishing up Mansfield Park with chapters 46 to 48. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.